welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're featuring Rodney Jones. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. All right. Welcome, everybody, to episode 23 of High Action. You know, Will, I just love hearing that intro music every time. It always gets me. Me too. That's a jam. <laughs> I have a vivid memory about playing that song live with you guys for the first time. You know, our first show was our first actual trio <laughs> anything rehearsal. Yeah. And you busted out that octave pedal on Balmer's Ibanez. That's, and I was just oh, like, right. Oh, my God. Knocked me off stage, man. Yeah, so that little ditty you hear before we start each episode is Blues for Brubeck, uh, a song we recorded uh, as a trio when we made the acoustic album, Sleeping Lady. Yeah, so it's always fun to have that featured here on the podcast. And this week, we're really excited to welcome an incredible guest, uh, the wonderful guitarist Rodney Jones. John, how about Rodney, man? What a player, huh? Yeah, so delighted to finally get to meet him. He's one of the guys on the podcast who, of course, I've known about for years. And even going back to when I was a kid, seeing him on the Rosie O'Donnell show, I remember seeing him on TV. Yeah, I mean, what a, you know, this podcast has been great, man, for us to get to connect with guys like this. I feel very fortunate to just get to have some hang time with guys like Rodney. He's deep cat. Yeah, definitely. He's really knows what he's talking about. And uh, we're also really thrilled to be celebrating uh, Black History Month. This is the first week of February, and uh, the three of us as jazz musicians, uh, we're really grateful for this music that has uh, come from Black Americans. And so I think it's really important for us all to kind of acknowledge that and to give the respect that is necessary. Uh, and Rodney is someone who really deserves an immense amount of respect from guitar players all over. He's a really methodical player you know so mm-hmm. much so that he considers himself a teacher first and a player second which i think is really interesting considering he's played with just about everybody he could certainly consider himself a player if anybody could right but i wanted to ask each of you guys just like your experiences with teachers like rodney players like rodney who can really break it down versus your experiences studying with people who are a little bit more uh, conceptual about things and not not as straightforward. Uh, Will, do you have sort of those experiences? Yeah, well, I think two examples on both sides are are two of my early teachers. The methodical side being Ron Eshday, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who who literally writes out things like in a packet and it's all organized and it's there. And I mean, you know, it's written out. You run it, you drill it, and you continue. And then you know as John knows, Dan Balmer, who, who even himself kind of proclaims, like, I teach by asking questions. You know, he's not saying you need to play this scale. He says, you know, okay, what notes did we play or what notes could we add to that chord? So I think those are two perfect examples of, of both sides. Yeah. And John, same for you. Same. And, you know, it's funny. There's been times where I've been studying with people who are more methodical and people who are more conceptual, spiritual. And it's funny when you're kind of in each one of those, sometimes you crave the other, you know, like you want to have somebody write out a bunch of stuff for you to work on, 
Or if you're studying with somebody who's like, do these 10 items and see you next week, then you want to be hanging with the person that's like, let's just get into the zone. Yeah, it's part of the experience of being a, a guitar student. The guitar culture, too. You know, so much of what we learn on guitar, especially early on, is so by rote. And like, follow me, follow this chord. And our instrument is so complex. There's so many different ways to study it. Um, things like sight reading really helps to have a method, especially when you're getting going so that you know where to start because it's such a, a matrix to, to try to figure out. Like, it's not something you can just figure out, you know, spiritually. You got to mm -hmm. actually know where the fretboard notes are. Um, but yeah, really fun to talk to Rodney in this sense too, you guys, because I felt like it was like we, I was in a lesson almost. It was just really nice to have him give us so much of his insight into his teaching. Yeah, very generous guy, very articulate. And for the listeners, it's a really fun interview. You know, he shares so many awesome stories from his experiences on the road. He shares a lot of knowledge about the guitar and about progressing as a guitarist. So uh, we're really thrilled to be presenting this episode. We want to thank everybody who's been following us on our Instagram. Thank you for that. Everybody who's been following us on Patreon. We really appreciate all your support. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening to our podcast. We're really excited to welcome all the new subscribers. And without further ado, please check out this episode with Rodney Jones. Rodney, how are you, man? That's how I am. Hey, <laughs> good to see you, man. Yeah. All right. That's, that's the best inter best start of this thing that's ever happened by far. Yes. <laughs> it is so great to see you and virtually meet you. I don't even think, you know, 10 years in New York, I don't, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't think I've had the pleasure of uh, really getting to know you that well, seeing you play a few times, but man, thank you for, for being here and spending some time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, I, I, I'm a little bit of a, something of an enigmatic figure, I think. <laughs> I um, yes. It's not by design. It's not that I try to be that. It's just that I've learned that the the road to mastery that I'm on requires me to say no to lots of things. All yeah. the things that I say no to give me time to say yes to other things. So it's, it's not that I, I'm just not on the scene for every gig. There's lots of gigs I turn down and lots of scenes I don't hang out and just, I'm not a part of because, you know, if it's a matter of like, you know, being at the Vanguard for the third set or uh, practicing impressions for three hours, what has more value to me? You know, that, that has more value. Or would I rather learn a beautiful arrangement of Darn That Dream? Or would I rather go hear, you know, some saxophone, you know, recite Michael Brecker lines all night? I just, exactly. You know, it's exactly. just like that. You know? you know, man, what you were playing before when I was just kind of logging in sounded so great. Would you want to kick us off a little bit with some more of that? <laughs> I Are you kidding? Okay. Well, let me just do a little let introduction. Me, let me just tell you that you don't know this. I have the world record for the longest continuous jazz guitar solo right now. <laughs> I played Our Remember April on Facebook for an hour and 48 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> At a medium up tempo, not stopping. I've played, I've played impressions for like an hour and a half. I, this is blues minor, the you know the changes to blues minor, the Coltrane tune. I played that at least seventy five, eighty minutes. I I never run out of ideas, so I can just I can keep going, you know. So oh, we got yeah. you.
that enough? Yeah, Whoa. man. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Man. Man, great playing. Thank you for that. You know, I have to say, um, I don't think we've ever had a guest start out just coming right out the gate playing some burning stuff. So we appreciate you very much for that. Well, you know, my working adage is if you want to play exercises, you should practice exercises. If you want to play music, you should practice music. That's yeah. right. Us as human beings are like a tube of toothpaste. When we're squeezed, what's in us will come out. The yep. music's in us. When we're squeezed, it's going to come out. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that resonates very deeply with me. And um, again, let me just take the opportunity to welcome you to our podcast. Uh, it's really an honor and a pleasure um, to have you here today. And I want to thank you in advance for your time. Um, for, for our listeners that may not be familiar with you, Rodney, uh, you're such a phenomenal player. And I want to let everybody know some of your career highlights just off the jump. Um, oh, go on. <laughs> you, uh, you started out early on with the great Dizzy Gillespie, about a three-year stint with him. I want to definitely get into that. Um, I think around 20 years with the great jazz vocalist Lena Horne. In addition, you've worked with so many other leading jazz artists. Um, you've also been a faculty member at the Juilliard School or the Manhattan School of Music. And as we were discussing, you've done some extensive TV work on shows like Rosie O'Donnell, Showtime at the Apollo. And uh, if that wasn't enough, you're a successful band leader and really just one of the main pillars of jazz guitar in New York City. So it really is a treat for you to join us on High Action. So thank you. It's again. my pleasure. The, the pillar comment is code for old. <laughs> oh. you're one of the you're one of the columns in the parthenon of jazz <laughs> i'm cool with that i earned it believe me i'm cool with it hey man it's you know listen guitar playing is like wine it gets better with age you know what i'm saying well i say you know jazz guitar is a young man's music best played by older men <laughs> yes there you go like there you go well I've admired your playing for a long time, and yeah, I'm just thrilled that you're here. And uh, on the podcast, we'd like to get a little background on each of the players uh, before we dive too deep into everything. And um, from my research, I know you were born in New Haven, Connecticut. Is that correct? Yep. And uh, you started playing guitar around the age of six. And so kind of one of my initial questions for you was, you know, what drew you to the guitar and specifically jazz uh, when you were a young person? Uh, well, uh, you know, my father, we were living in Nashville, Tennessee at the time, and mm -hmm. my father was a teacher, and his students, he had always said he wanted to play guitar. And so his students, I, I before that, I even had a little toy guitar, you know. But when we were getting ready to move to New York in about 1964 or so, uh, his students gave him an actual guitar and said, here, you, you, you know, Professor Jones, you said you wanted to play guitar. Our going away present is, here's an actual guitar. Um, and I jumped on that like you know that yeah. was my guitar so i just began to play and i would you know when i got to new york i took my first lessons playing you know this land is your land and you know kumbaya and these kind of folk american folk songs i got pretty good so i ended up uh getting selected to i, I think i was playing in riverside church something like that peter pete seeger was a guest oh, and he was wow. like you're really good kid i want you to play wow. with me Wow. So I ended up doing a bunch of gigs with Pete Seeger, playing rhythm guitar for Pete Seeger. You know? wow. uh, and I was 12, 11 in that zone. I'd been playing guitar just a year or two. You know? Oh, my God. Um, and then I discovered um, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And now uh, Game Over. Because yeah. I heard that, and I was like, okay. So like every other kid, you know, at that yeah. time, I was like, okay, so I need the black light poster on the wall, and I need a lava lamp, and 
you know, forget the aquarium, you know, I, I needed like posters all over, you know. And so I went full on with that. Um, and I wasn't really into jazz till about uh, 14 or just turning 15. I was at home listening to Hendrix Cry of Love, mm-hmm. that recording, which I love to this day. It's, you know, it's a masterpiece. And my father came in and he said, hey, there's a, there's my, a friend of mine brought someone you should meet. And I was like, what? He said, well, you know, John, John Motley was a, a head of the school system in New York City. Mm-hmm. And John Motley had grown up in the town where Dizzy Gillespie had grown up. John had written like a musical opera thing where Dizzy was going to participate in, and my father was writing the narrative. Oh, wow. So John had brought Dizzy to my house wow. for a meeting, and my father said, "You know, Dizzy Gillespie." And I was like, "Oh, Dad, do I have to?" <laughs> you know, I'm listening to Jimi Hendrix. He said, "No, you'll you'll be glad I introduced you to Dizzy Gillespie." So I went out there, and I was like, "Hi, Mr. Gillespie." You know, like, a, like every little kid, like it's the biggest drag in the world. Yeah. He talked to me. He said, "You play guitar?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "You play jazz?" I said, "No, not really." He said, "Oh, jazz is good." And you know, and then he, he explained a little bit about jazz. And I was like, "Oh, that sounds cool." He said, "Would you like to take some lessons from my guitar player?" His guitarist at the time was a guy named Al Gaffa. Okay, who lives out in Brooklyn now, I believe. And okay. um, so I said, "Yeah," which it was probably a weak, half-hearted "Yeah," but it was "Yeah" because my father was there. I was like, "Yeah, I want to take lessons." You know, sure. Um, so he hooked me up with lessons with Al Gaffa. I took, I think, three lessons. Al showed me the Dorian mode. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that was I was like, that was really cool. And so I took some lessons from Al and. Uh, I didn't make a lot of progress with that Dorian Mode. It was, it was good, <laughs> but it was sort of like, that's it. That's jazz, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I heard Barney Kessel on the radio. Uh, when this is back when they had radios. That's a, yeah. Yeah. an ancient device for those of you that don't know. You know, right, right. ballpoint <laughs> pen radio. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I heard Barney Kessel playing Summertime on the radio. And I was like, I picked up my guitar. I was like, oh, that's great. And I, none of those notes would come out. It's like, oh my God, like, how come I can't find those notes? I can play, you know, Freedom and Cry of Love and, you know, Hey Joe, but I can't get Summertime out on my guitar. What's going on? So right. then I began to fully say, okay, I need to find. So I was in a music store and there was this guitar player playing a, a right-handed guitar upside down. A guy named Bruce Johnson, wow. uh, African-American guitar player. At that time, he was maybe 25, 25. Yeah. But he was, to my mind, he was... It was the greatest jazz guitar I'd ever heard in my life. He was killing it. It's not like Wes Montgomery and George Benson rolled into one. Wow. So I like, you know, he, he's, I had, I was trying out an SG. He said, here, let me try that. And he took the SG and turned it upside down and played it and played the crap. I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm, I said, do you give lessons? He said, yeah. He said, I'm getting ready to go to Europe on a tour, but I'll call you when I get back. So anyway, four months later, I hadn't heard anything. I figured nothing. And then one day he says, hey, this is Bruce Johnson. You still want those lessons? I said, yeah. He said, well, <laughs> come over in an hour. That's awesome. <laughs> so I was like, you know, jazz musician style. So I dropped everything yeah. and went over there. And he became really the formative teacher of jazz. He was a master teacher. He taught me. He taught Bobby Broom. He wow. taught Kevin Eubanks. Nice. He taught Ed Cherry. Nice. You know, yeah. for, for any, you know, he, I mean, he was the guy, you know, particularly in the African-American community. Any any guitarist of color went through him. He was, Kenny Burrell loved him. When I started playing with Kenny Burrell, Kenny Burrell, you studied with Bruce, I can hear that. He was like. You nice. learn right, you know. Nice, nice. Uh, he was, but Bruce was a real enigmatic, like mystic. You think of him like a Thelonious Monk type of figure. Okay, you know, erratic. You go there one day and it's like focus, and the next day you go there and it's like all over the place. You know, man. The fun part of the story is, I'll just tell you, the fun part of the narrative is that I got the gig playing with Chico Hamilton when I was eighteen. The Chico, the drummer. Yeah. And and I had a night off 
and Dizzy Gillespie was playing the Vanguard. I'm sorry, the Village Gate at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I went down to the Village Gate to hear the band. Now, this is like, you know, three years, four years from when I had met Al Gaffer. Mm -hmm. So Al says, hey, Rodney, he said, I hear you're playing with Cheek Hammer. I said, yeah, man, you know, thanks for those lessons kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And and I said, you know, playing with Chico is great, but I'd sure like to have your gig. And okay. three weeks later, right. Dizzy Gillespie offered me his gig. Well, wow. that's, a, that's a good lesson. Sometimes you just got to put it out there, you know. And, and, and I mean... You know, and for years he thought like I was setting him up. I had to. I called him finally and said, "Alex, I want to tell you, like, I had no idea when I said that to you. I was just saying it like hypothetically, like you know, boy, you know, like yeah. as an expression because I admire you. I would never try to take your gig. I didn't know that it wasn't like any kind of thing like that. Yeah, and of course. We, you know, we maintained our friendship after that, and that was all good. You know. Well, it's so interesting to hear you talk about your story. Um, it really actually resonates deeply with me because you know my dad played guitar. That's how I got into it. Uh, I learned folk tunes at the beginning. That's how I was getting into it. Obviously, Hendrix, for me, was a transformative figure to hear, really inspiring. And actually, to further the conversation on this, um, one of the guitar players that was really instrumental in teaching me and getting me into jazz was a guy that I met uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area in a music store who had a photo of him playing guitar behind his back on the Ed Sullivan show. Wow. So I'm listening to you tell your story, and I'm thinking, man, this sounds so similar. Um, however, I did not get a gig with Chico Hamilton when I was 18. <laughs> so that's where the similarities <laughs> stop. Today's podcast is sponsored by Education Through Music Los Angeles. ETMLA partners with under-resourced schools to provide music as a core subject for all children and utilizes music education as a catalyst to improve academic achievement, motivation for school, and self-confidence. ETMLA believes that every child deserves access to high-quality music education taught by qualified and well-trained music teachers. Music can support learning in other key subjects, including math, science, and language arts. ETMLA was founded by their executive director, Victoria Lanier. She has incredible experience in music education, and she's a brilliant violin teacher. We know these folks. We know this organization. They're great people, and they're a 5013C nonprofit. So for people out there who are in a position to donate, a position to give back, we hope you all consider our favorite music education program, Education Through Music Los Angeles. You can find them at etmla.org. I wanted to ask you about working with Dizzy. I know this was one of your earlier gigs. It must, must have really helped kind of launch you into the scene and been a, just an incredibly educational experience. I just turned 19. Wow. I can't even imagine that. So... Tell me a little bit about what it was like being in that band. I've, I've heard some of the clips and some of the videos of you playing with them. I know you were playing your big box, and Dizzy was doing some more fusion-type stuff at the time, but tell me a little bit about your experience with him. I mean, you know, it was transformative in every kind of way. You know, Dizzy, in hindsight, I realized the love and care that he treated me with. You know, in the moment, I was like being the, you know, the brass on jazz guitar player, you know. And yeah. In my mind, I was like, I was like doing it. He really nurtured me along. He never really showed me a lot of things, but he showed me anything I asked him. Hmm. And, but I have some very inappropriate, like I said to him one day, I said, you know, Dizzy, you know, like I noticed like, you know, you basically play the same lines you played like 30 years ago. Why do you play the same stuff all the time? Oh man. You asked him that, <laughs> you know, like this is like, 
you know, never mind that this is my gig. I'm like, you know, I'm like the, the brash young man. Like, yeah. why are you playing that same old? And I, I didn't say stuff, just to be clear. The same old stuff. S, <laughs> S, asterisk, asterisk, T. Yeah, yeah. Same old stuff. Why are you playing that same old stuff all the time? And he looked at me without missing a beat. And he said, why mess with perfection? Can't, can't argue with him, man. Can't argue with well, that. Well, what he was saying was, which is something, you know, it's like, Many artists, you know, you spend a lifetime finding yourself. You want to find who you actually are in your instrument. And when you find it, then you're just being yourself. You know, asking him why you're playing the same thing would be like saying, well, you know, why do you wake up and look the same? I mean, that's who you are. Yeah. And so there was no difference between the music he played and who he was. He had found that thing where it was a true expression of himself. So he was just saying, like, you know, it's perfect. I'm like who I am, and this is what it is. Now, different artists feel differently. Obviously, Miles Davis had a different sort of thing, and and Coltrane, you know, those that are constantly reinventing themselves, then the music reinvents with them. Mm-hmm. And that's a little different thing. Dizzy did that not by reinventing his vocabulary, by changing the background. So Dizzy had a big band period and a Latin period and mm-hmm. a small group jazz period and a funk period and a fusion period, all that kind of stuff. He did that by changing the background behind his what he played. Mm-hmm. But he pretty much played the same thing. But it was a master class in, in learning. I mean, I toured the world. I was getting $2,000 a week. Wow, back know, in, in the 1976, 70s. that was which was like you know ten thousand dollars a week now. So yeah, I was, yeah. you know, I had a beautiful girlfriend. I mean, she was like a supermodel. She looked like, you know, literally like Alicia Keys times three. You know, so I'm living the <laughs> fantasy life. I've got you know two thousand dollars a week in my pocket. Got this beautiful woman on my arm. I'm playing with Dizzy. I'm playing yeah. an L five. You yeah. know, I'm like, yeah, life is good. You know, and, and that was great. You know, and then what happened is that I I did that for three years, but Dizzy worked 25 days a month. Wow. 12 months a year. Wow. And I literally burned out. I literally like, I wanted to like, I was into Coltrane and Joe Henderson and McCoy Tyner. And I, I like playing with Dizzy, but we kind of played, it was a show. Like, you know, we played Con Alma and these same tunes every night, which of course Miles played the same tunes with his group every night too. Yeah. A lot of people. Uh, I didn't understand at that time that the value of going deep instead of going wide. Mm -hmm. Dizzy was going deep into something but you only get you only understand night in Tunisia after you've played it a thousand times. You understand something different then than you understand it you played it a hundred times. Sure. And at a hundred you understand something different than when you played it twenty times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't get that at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, but you, you wonder why Coltrane played impressions, so why it's incredible. Well, he played it a thousand times. If you haven't played it a thousand times, you have no hope of understanding what he possibly understood in that because you haven't played it a thousand times. That's exactly. just the way it is. You know. I just told I just couldn't do it. The 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 day after I quit. Elvin Jones called me on the phone, said, hey, man, I heard you left Dizzy. I want you to join my band. Huh. Hey, you not know? bad. Man. And, and of not course, bad. Elvin was my hero. Yeah. But I was so burned out, I couldn't do it. I just said, Elvin, I, I just I just came off the road like three years of like every night. On, and Elvin toured like Dizzy. Yeah. I was like, I just can't. I can't do that. You know? Wow. So I, I didn't do it. So that was the end of that gig. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. I, I mean, not a lot of people can say they turned down Elvin Jones, but uh, oh, I turned down Michael Jackson. I've turned down wow. Whitney Houston. Wow. I've turned down Christian McBride. I've turned down Ron Carter. The people I've turned down, yeah, you know, it's a good, it's a a, a badge of pride and honor, or slash, <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> well, as you said, you know, sometimes it gives you the time to really focus on the things that. You're really. You I know. created my own pandemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. You know, 
Uh, I love your analogy about saying, you know, the difference between going deep and going wide, you know, and, and, and talking about working with Dizzy and the fact that he played the same repertoire over and over again and that you really had to go deep and dig deep to find ways to keep being fresh over that. Something I've experienced a little bit playing with groups, certainly in the New West Guitar Group, we play a lot of the same 25, 30 tunes when we're on the road, and you just got to go deep into those arrangements. Um, that's something that certainly resonates with me. I wanted to ask you, though, with Dizzy, it is in the 70s, and you're playing a big hollow body guitar. You said it was an L5 that you were working with. Well, I started with an L5 with a Johnny Smith pickup. And then uh, rapidly, I discovered that when I would push that volume-wise, the Johnny Smith got really thin sounding. Right. Okay. So then I bought a Guild X500. I've seen and that you, was the main axe I used with Dizzy all that time. Yeah, I've seen you with the Guild. I've seen some videos of that. And yeah. uh, man, it sounds great. And one of my questions is a guy that plays a lot of the bigger boxes a lot. Did you struggle? You know, because um, it can be hard to get those guitars to cut. And a lot of guys at that time, you know, people like Schofield were using thinner body guitars. Mike Stern, they're using solid bodies. They're using semi-hollows. So what was it for you? Why did you stick with the hollow body when you probably could have used a, a telly or you could have used a semi-hollow? Why, why did you stick with the big box? Well, because it, it allowed me to do one. Like when I teach, you know, I spent years at Juilliard, Manhattan School of Music in Berkeley mm -hmm. and all over the world teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I teach five things. You know, and the five things I teach are, you know, the linear approach, the harmonic approach, the rhythmic approach, the dynamic approach, and your sound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are the areas that I'm teaching that I look for students and people. So I was aware of that then. And what I, you know, what the X500, because it was, was a laminated top, although it didn't have a block in it, it gave me enough sound because it was laminated and it was pretty, it was a heavy guitar mm -hmm. that it gave me enough sort of punch that if I played it through the right amplifier, at that time I was using generally a Polytone 104, mm -hmm. or I would use sometimes a Fender Twin if they didn't have a Polytone 104, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that it gave me the sound I was I was looking for. Because I, I wasn't willing to sacrifice the tone. you got to remember the Dizzy, although wanting to do modern music, was a product of the era where tone mattered. Mm -hmm. You know, where the sound of the music the sound of your instrument was part of the baked in, like, I expect you to have a good sound if you're playing in my band. I asked Dizzy one time, early on when I joined this band, I said, you know, we are playing something. I said, well, you know, what do you want me to play? He said, listen, you're the guitar player. If I have to tell you what to play, then I'm the guitar player, and I don't need you in the band. Deep. Yeah. <laughs> I go, okay. I, I get your point. I, I guess I know what to play all of a sudden. You know, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Suddenly, I know exactly what to do. I know? like that. Um, but so, no, Dizzy value tone. Yeah. You know, he he never suspended his values of tone and dynamics, you know, that, that it mattered. The, I, the goal was not to play everything even. The goal was to play things in a human way, the way that the voice inflects. You want to inflect the notes like that, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And so I, I, I believed in that, too. And my teacher had taught me that, you know, that really matters. So I, I did that. Later on, I did I did play a, uh, a semi-hollow, not with him, though. But, it, you know, an interesting story about the semi-hollow. I, I gave it a try one time. We were playing at a club called... Um, the Parisian room in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I had bought there, someone had, was like some music store had done sale of like $300, a red Gibson 335 12 string. <laughs> and I thought this would be a good idea to bring it on Dizzy's gig. You know, oh, yeah. I left my regular guitar in the room. I left my X500 in the room and brought only the 12 string. 
So I'm there, like, we're getting ready to play, and George Benson walks in. Oh, uh, come on. And I'm like, oh, man, this is the worst night of my life. Like, <laughs> George Benson is getting ready to hear me solo on a jacked-up red 12-string guitar with Dizzy Gillespie. I look like a complete moron. You know, but afterwards, I went over, I was like, hey, George, man, you know, about the guitar. He's like, no, brother, it sounds good. I said, yeah, but you know, it's a 12-string, George, you know, like. You know, that 12 string, trying to tune a 12 string is like herding cats. You know, it was like, yes. it was sort of that kind of experience. So, yes, that's funny, There's man. Four digital tuners, you understand. Everything was a tuning fork. Yeah. You know, that, that's what I was doing. So, oh, man, what a, well, that must have been a fun gig to get through. Uh, I can, I can commend you for that. Um, well, listen, I wanted to, to transition a little bit to talk about another gig that you did for a lot of years. You worked with the great Lena Horn, one of the great jazz vocalists. And, I think it's a really important setting for a lot of guitar players to experience is, is working with vocalists. Um, it's been a big part of my career. I've been fortunate to work with some really great vocalists throughout the years. And certainly when I was younger, it was something that I did. And it kind of helped huh. pull together some very fundamental things on the guitar for me. And mm. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your time with Lena Horn and, and with the other vocalists that you worked with. Sure. And just talk well, a little I, bit. I mean, the list, not to cut you off, I mean, the list is... The game is who haven't I played with? Right. So I have played with everybody. You know, I've toured with Bonnie Raitt. I've played with, you know, Lena Horne and Peggy Lee and Sarah Vaughn and Carmen McRae and Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, Dakota Staten and uh, Brooke Benton and Arthur Prysock and and uh, uh, Ruth Brown yeah. and, you know, on and on and on and on. Right. Cheryl Crow and, you know, all different types, Madonna, you name it, all these types, this is wow. a variety of experience. Wow. So the, the, with Lena Horn, I mean, Lena was one of my greatest musical teachers. She would argue that she didn't know music, but she knew music at a depth that, you know, all, virtually no jazz musician I ever worked with, including the jazz greats, knew. Because she understood how to make the music so intensely human. You know, I, I'll tell you just a couple of quick stories. Like, mm -hmm. one, when I was playing... Um, and we had rehearsal, and she wanted to rehearse. I'm glad there was you. So she said, "We'll make an intro." And I think it was in it was in G. So I played like. She said, "No, wrong." She said, "Try it again." So I was like, "She's like, no, that's not it." And you said, "You know, know the song?" It's like, yeah, I, I, you know, yeah, of course. Yeah, right. right. We'll try it again. So I'm like. It's like, no, that's not it. She said, let me ask you a question, Rodney. Uh, are the chords you're playing, do, do they take into account the first breath I'm going to take before I start the lyric? Are you leading me into the breath I take? Or are you starting the song? Like, are you leading me into my first entrance into the song? Or are you leading me, is it starting the song and I'm not even there? Which right. is it? Right, right. She said, do your, do your chords match the meaning of the words, if you think of the whole first verse and what it's conveying, are your chords implying anything about that? Are they saying anything about what that means, what the intention of the song is? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Never mind the verse. <laughs> you know. And I was like, no. She said, well, think about that and try it again. And I play something like this. Thank you. 
She Be- said, uh, now you got it. Beautiful. I love so that. So I learned, you know, you hear musicians talk about you need to know the lyrics. But I didn't know that like someone at that level, you need to know the space between the lyrics. You need to know what the breath means. Like, you know, it's what in classical music is an ictus. You know, that when the conductor mm-hmm. raises his baton, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. tells the orchestra what the, what it's going to feel like, what the downbeat is. Yeah. Most musicians just say, oh, yeah. And her sensibility was so far beyond that, her, her degree. Now, the other thing I learned was when we would play these songs, she would come off the stage in tears, just wringing sweat. And I thought this was really unusual, like, because hmm. the, the, the place is air-conditioned, you know, and but she would just be distraught. And, I, and I, so I said to her once, I said, you know, Miss Horn, what's going on? And she said, what people don't understand, what they'll never understand is that when I sing these lyrics, I live them. When I sing stories of heartache, I'm living the heartache that the song is conveying. I have to relive all these journeys every night. If they're not just words, I'm living the story. Yeah. And so when I sing these songs of longing and heartache and love lost, I'm living that every night. He said, and sometimes it's just too much. And and that's why she was so great. I mean, well, that's right. One of the things that I always respond to when when hearing great uh, musicians of any instrument but certainly a vocalist is is you want to you want to believe that they really mean and feel what they're singing and and, you know uh that's something that she certainly embodied and wow the lessons that you um have mentioned here that you learned from her that i mean these are just nuggets of wisdom that i hope all of our listeners are taking in and trying to digest because if you're a guitar player and, and you have some chances to work with a vocalist you know step one here is to really understand the lyric don't just know the lyric and recite it but understand it uh okay. have some sort of reference of the greats that have sung the song so you really know the phrases with the melody and the breath between the melody like you're talking about rodney so and if you if you want to play for a singer and play with anybody if you want to play jazz at the highest level yeah you've got to be willing to give yeah. You've got to be willing to make the music the star and not you. Yeah. You've got to be willing to say what's best for the song, what's best for the artist, what's be- what's going to make the sound. You know, I I introduced Kenny Kirkland to jazz, you know, the great jazz piano player, you know. Yeah, of course. And it was a quality that he had. You know, he made everyone he played with sound better. Mm-hmm. Because as for all his genius, if he's playing behind you, you sound amazing. <laughs> Like you know, it was it was mysterious to me for years how that was possible, but I always played better with him than when I played with other piano players who played great. But he had a way of just coaxing the best out of whatever I was going to do. And so when I play for a vocalist, I'm always uh, you know aware that like what is the tone, you know? And in general, Chico Hamilton told me you know in general you want to think opposites. If the vocalist is in a low register, you want to be away from that. You want to be in a higher register. Mm-hmm. If the mm-hmm. vocalist is, is singing a lot of notes, you want to play a few notes. If the vocalist is sustaining a note, you can play a fill behind it. But if you think opposite, the vocal's tone is strident, you want to be full. The vocal's tone is very full, you want to have a little thinner sound so you're not in the space yeah. of where the yeah. vocal is. And that was good wisdom that I learned very early on. That's beautiful. Man, I love all of this. And um, I, I also wanted to talk because you're such a deep cat, you know, you have such a great philosophy on all this. And in preparation for this interview, I was reading a written interview that you did with uh, Jazz Guitar Today, which for our listeners, I highly recommend this interview. You can find it online, but it was an article and a feature on you, Rodney. And you uh, talked a little bit about your teaching philosophy, and I was just struck by how eloquently you described sort of these 
these two different areas, the, the art of jazz and the craft of guitar, and trying to really understand each of these and how they relate. Um, and you've spent your career doing such an incredible job with that. Can you talk a little bit about really the fundamental elements of both the art of jazz and the craft of guitar that you've come to understand uh, sure. throughout your career? Well, I think the, the important thing with learning anything is you have to determine early on what moves the needle, what really is going to make the greatest difference in your approach. Mm -hmm. A lot of us spend time in the byways and side things and not really on the thing that gives us the biggest result. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I do, I tell students, you know, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. <laughs> so it's important to know what the goal is. What yeah. are you aiming for? You know, if you want to jump off a cliff, you have to know where the cliff is. Right. You know, so you have to, you have to understand what you're working with and you have to know your why. Why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing it to make your family proud. Or you're doing it to prove something. Are you doing it because you love music? Are you doing it because you need the validation? Like, whatever the reason is, and, I, and I'm not judging what is a good or a bad reason. You just have to connect to, like, why you're doing it because that will allow you to survive through a pandemic or through no gigs or through hard, or bad gigs or through great success without losing your mind or no success without losing your mind. Right. When you're connected to your why, that will help you to sustain in the long term your career. So... Notwithstanding that, yes, the art of music and the craft of the guitar, they intersect, they weave with each other, but they're also different things. Mm -hmm. There are many people who are not great guitarists who make great music, you know, mm -hmm. and then there's mm -hmm. some uh, genius guitar players whose music leaves me cold. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I when I go hear music, I go to hear music. I don't go to hear a guitar show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, part of my brain likes that. I can enjoy it because I'm a guitarist, but I also recognize that, you know, that's not the actual music. The actual music is the sound. And the key that I tell students is you have to learn to see with your ears and hear with your eyes, you know, and which means that when you hear something, when I listen to music, I can see how I'm going to play it. If I'm going to, if I want to learn something, if I listen to Coltrane play something, as he's playing it, I can visualize that on the guitar. I can see if I want to adapt that, if I want to learn that thing, now, I don't get it 100% right, but I get right. it in the zone. I've done It's like I've done the pre-production for the production. Then when I sit down to learn it, I've already done half of the work. I've already envisioned sort of, I've trained myself to see where the notes, where these shapes look like and how they fit. On the other hand, when I look at music, and this is the key to successful sight reading and all the gigs I've done, when I look at it, I don't view it as mathematics. I hear it as sound. Mm -hmm. So when I look at a chart, I hear it like someone's playing it. I look at the music. And I'm hearing it inside. So I'm using my eyes to hear and my ears to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That dramatically cuts the rate of learning a lot. You know, Now, that's an acquired skill, but you know, repetition is the mother of skill. Mm -hmm. And repetition of improvement is the mother of mastery. Mm -hmm. If you improve a little bit every day, you will become a master at anything you improve 1% at a week. A year from now, you're 52% better at anything that's right <laughs> and one percent you can't even detect one percent but most of us under most of us overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in five years mm -hmm. you know that small thing if you think a small thing can make a difference you never spend a night in a room with a mosquito you know <laughs> you know a small thing you know if you're if you're taking a boat from new york to china you know a quarter of a degree off, you'll never reach China. You'll be a complete other part of the ocean. That's it's right. a small thing. It's a quarter of a degree. Yeah. So it's important to, to learn to course correct. This is the value of having a, a skilled teacher who can help keep you on track. Yes. To the magnetic north. So yeah, craftsmanship, you know, learning the guitar 
doing the basic stuff. I, I don't say don't play exercise. I think exercises are valuable, particularly from a craftsmanship standpoint. I just don't confuse that with actual music. Right. There is some bleeding through. You know, it's great if you can play, you know, a minor pentatonic scale and you apply it to four different chords. That's great. Now make music out of it, you know. Um, and conversely, if you have a real great musical impulse, but you don't do any work to get it out, you're like someone who mumbles. Right. You know, right. you have a great idea, but I can never tell what it is because you can't express it in any kind of, you can't express it in time. You can't express it with other musicians. You can't get it out yourself. So it's unclear what your idea is. And there's a difference. You know, everybody's a great writer in their head. Right, right. But to get it out, that's that's the work. Yeah. You know, there's a difference in being a great typist and a great author. You know, being a great guitar player is being a great typist. It's impressive to see one type someone who can type 300 words a minute. Stenographer, that's unbelievable. A skill. But listen to John Lee Hooker. Yeah, exactly. Read yeah. Ernest Hemingway. You exactly. know, let yeah. someone take five years to write a novel. Right. No one's going to say, oh, man, you took five years for, to do that? That sucks. No. Now, That's great. Now, did, you, did you ever struggle with being able to kind of separate the two? So, like, the craft of guitar can be sort of analytical. You know, you're really working on things, like the you're working on lots of details. And then when you are trying to play music and be in the moment, did you ever struggle with sort of letting go of those kind of hang-ups that you were dealing with uh, when you were evaluating your playing? Well, I mean, to be human is to struggle, right? You know, right. To, to, to that, it's a question, you know, it's like mistakes in music, you know. There's nothing wrong with making mistakes as long as you don't make it every time or you don't stay on it too long. Right. You know, if you hit a, ra a wrong note and you get off of it, it's a passing tone. But if you hit it wrong every time, it's a wrong note. You know, it just depends on how often you do it and how long you stay on the note. You know, if you go. <laughs> and every time around, you know, so, so then, but yeah, but that's a major minor seven. I'm hearing that. No, you're not. Yeah. That's a wrong note to you. <laughs> yeah. That's a wrong note. There is no, you're not hearing, you don't know that it's a major. I can look at the students like, you don't know it's a major. That's a wrong note. And don't, don't tell me otherwise, but kudos for knowing it's a major minor seven, you know? Um, I like so that. yeah, I did struggle with that, but, but I, the key for me is, uh, Perry is to, there's five ways of picking on the guitar, you know? And then there's a sixth way, which is the way I pick, but there's five ways that, you know, the rest of you folk pick on the guitar, right? You know, that's a joke. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, which is, you know, they're, they're those that pick, you know, you pick alternate. Yeah. You know, you pick legato. Yeah. You you pick sweep picking. Yeah. You pick some version of sweep picking, which is, a you know, like sweep, sweep in one direction and alternate back. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, you can use hand style and thumb and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then the, the sixth, fifth way or the sixth way is the hybridization of that. Mm -hmm. The reason that's important, I teach all my students to pick all five ways. The reason that's important is because if you pick the same way as your vocabulary and your language expands, it's akin to you growing up as a human being and wearing the same shirt you did when you were 12. Hmm. Now, if you like that shirt, there's nothing wrong with that. If you know, you like, yeah, my mom bought me the shirt and I still feel it. I'm 28 now, but I'm still feeling it. Okay. I'm, I'm with that. If that's if, but at least it has to be a conscious choice, right. you know, but yeah. to pick, to learn to pick one way. And then you say, well, now I'm going to really check out train Coltrane vocabulary and to expect that vocabulary to funnel through the thimble of picking you've got going on, you know? So what I do and what I encourage students to do is to let this music tell them what the technique should be. Sure. There are some things that are better played legato than articulated. Mm -hmm. There's some things that are better played alternate than swept. There's mm -hmm. some things that are better played swept than alternate. 
making these choices based upon what the music asked, what yeah. the song asked, what the line asked. Yeah. If you transcribe a Coltrane line, you're going to play that differently than if you transcribe a Charlie Parker line. Yeah. The, the articulation and inflection is going to ask something different. Yeah. You just take McCoy Tyner, you get an instrument that doesn't have legato. you got to approach that different than if you're doing Cannonball Adderley. That's true. Yeah, that's so, true. But most of us, most guitar players, will pick the way they pick, and that's the way they pick. So then well, they settle into these these corners of like, well, this is what I do. This is how I do it. That works if you are a band leader. You know, if you're a band leader and your persona is like, this is I'm doing me and this is all I do. That works. Those are there are few people that reach that kind of success. Schofield, Pat Metheny, Kurt yeah. Rosenwinkel. You know, there are others to do that. But if you need to adapt, you know. If you're still learning and need to adapt other sorts of vocabulary and everything is not about you, then it requires to, to embrace, well, how does Charlie Parker actually phrase? What are the actual dynamics mm-hmm. of what he's playing? What can be learned from the dynamic arc of his playing? Not just the notes, but the dynamic of it, you know? Yeah. What's learned to, by the what's the What's the, the, you know, I mean, you take Pat Martino and George Benson, right? Both are incredible linear players. Both can play like these lines that are like, you know, what the heck? Both of them are geniuses at that. Right, right. But George Benson, his rhythmic sophistication is exponentially greater than Pat Martino. Oh, man. And his linear articulation, the inflections, is much more diverse. Hence, he feels different than a Pat Martino. Yeah. He's great, but after the third song of that way of playing, it's still genius guitar, and it's amazing because it's his style. I'm not taking anything away from him. Sure. But there's a difference in a Lenny Tristano and a Bud Powell. There's yeah. a difference in that. Yeah. It is a different thing. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, for me, when I learned this from Dizzy, it's like, you know, the dynamics and the way that you play things is as important as what you play. You can't disassociate the line, the notes of the line with the intention of the line and how you want to express that. That those are all things to bring under conscious control. Yeah. So I make all my students evaluate, you know, the difference in playing or or those are all different things. And when you hear me play, the vocabulary I play is carefully not not thought out, but I because I've embodied and you know and committed to that aesthetic, the lines I play are played the way I want them to sound. Like, you know, I, I know how to pick and have the kind of facility like George Benson, that kind of like blazing, but that's not how I play. Right. So right. it doesn't matter that I can do it if that's not what I should do. You right. know, there's a difference in what you can do and what you should do. So what really does it for me is the way I play now. Yeah. You know, now as a study, as something to learn and to learn from, well, it, you got to check out Pat Martino. You got to check out Pat Metheny and Schofield. You know, yeah. you'd be a fool to not check out that as well as, you know, the younger players that play great. I mean, Lage Lund is playing fantastic guitar. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're guys that play fantastic. You, you play great. I mean, anybody, you never get too old to learn from anybody. Yeah, yeah. But what I can do, I can hear you play, Perry. And hear the things that speak to me. So this is the right. this is the final thing of this long diatribe. The way that I think is the the most important way that I encourage all my students to learn in in all the courses. I have a bunch of online courses and stuff that I have done at school. And I, what I do is this. You know, I encourage them. I give you example, Perry. Now, ten years ago, maybe you'd never seen me, right? So. If we pass each other on the street, would you ever say hello to me? If we're just walking, you didn't know me, I didn't know you. Would you stop and say, hey, you wouldn't do that, would you? 
Well, I, I did know of you, but I, I don't think I had had the pleasure of spending time and getting to know you. So I might have you ever have been seen like, me? I, I've seen you play, yeah. I've seen you okay, play. Okay, so a few before times. you saw me play, if I was walking down the street. Probably wouldn't have said anything. Home. I probably wouldn't have recognized you or something. I don't know. Exactly. So here's the point of that. The reason you would speak to me now or then is because you recognize me. You said, hey, I know that guy. Hey, the things that you love in music, that's you telling you what's in you. That's true. If yeah. You wouldn't recognize it if it wasn't in you. If you didn't know it already, you couldn't even recognize it. That's why two people can listen to the same piece of music. One person says, man, that line is killing. The other person says, no, that's not the one. That line is killing. Yeah. Because they recognize what's existing within them. They're already re So it's important to practice to your strengths. Yeah. So yeah. in transcribing, the thing that I encourage students to do is when you listen to anybody, if they play anything, you say, man, that was freaking great. Stop and learn that thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's you telling you that's in you. You recognize it because you know it. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, if we just go by, you'd be like, yeah, it was all right. And then we just go right by. But if it stops you, there's a reason you stopped. That's right. And it, that, that's a recognition. So then you, if you begin to do that, now imagine I ask my students to learn one thing, to listen, and all they're listening to, find one thing a week that they love. Mm -hmm. Well, a year later, they have 52 things they yeah. found that they are now combining. Two years later, they have 104 things of ideas they love. So you talk about guitar players that hate their playing, man. I saw, they're playing ideas that, that they love, and they're playing ideas built on things they love. They're playing on a foundation of stuff they love, and it's their natural inclination anyway. Yeah. They yes. don't have the I hate my playing, I suck thing. They have like, wow, I can't wait to express more of how I feel about it. And that's a really exciting way to play. It is. And man, such a, it's so great hearing you speak about all this. I mean, you're, you're reinforcing so many important ideas that I hope resonate with our listeners. I mean, this idea of discipline, this idea of repetition, and this idea that something small, that if you do it continuously, uh, it really can make a huge difference. I really love hearing that. It's such an important thing to, to kind of understand. And, um, I'd love to take this moment now uh, to feature some of your recorded music. Uh, if that would be all right with you, I pulled up sure. a couple clips. Uh, one of them is from a really great album of yours. Uh, it's called, uh, let me get this right, Dreams and Stories. Recorded uh, in 1983. Recorded in 83, really? Recorded in 1983 using thumb only. Wow. Okay. So th I thought it was released later on Savant Records. It was, but yes. it was recorded in 19. I just had it sitting on my shelf, and and my wife was like, "You ever going to do anything with that? Because it's taking us. Oh. We need to get it out of here." I'm like, <laughs> "Okay." So then I called up Joe Fields at, at High Note Records, Savant. I said, "Hey, Joe, yeah. I got this master. It's got you know Jeff Watts on it and Kenny Kirkland, Kenny Kirkland, and yeah. Mark Johnson on bass." Yeah. He's like, "Man, it's an incredible band." I said, "And me." He said, "Oh yeah, you too." I was like, oh. <laughs> So I, I sent him the, the the tape. He said it's fantastic. So then I the the the, the two inch because this was the two inch tapes. Yeah. It was so old that I had to actually have it baked in because it was going to play one time and it was going to disintegrate. Okay. So I had it baked so it would play one time. It played one time. They made a digital master off of that. You transferred that to 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 digital format. Then I can mix it in Pro Tools and that's what you have. Um, but that's from 1983. So that's a much much younger version of me. That's almost 40 years ago now. Here we go. This is from Dreams and Stories, Rodney Jones, the song Star Eyes. Mm -hmm. 
Wow, that was the year I was born. I can't believe it, man. You were cooking. You Seemed were like cooking. a good idea at the time. Yeah, it's happening. <laughs> I think at this point, uh, I have one more track I want to play, but I'm going to save it for the end. Uh, I'd like to pass it off to my cohort here who's in Los Angeles, wonderful guitarist John Story. I don't know if you guys have ever met, but... Uh, no, but I know I know your work, John. Oh, man. Rodney, it's so good to see you, dude. And, and it's so great to finally get to talk to you when I was out of high school, I got accepted to Manhattan School of Music, but the day I auditioned, Jack Wilkins and Chris Rosenberg were there, and you weren't in the audition, but I was so like excited to to maybe get out to MSM out of high school from, from the West Coast. I grew up in Oregon, and I had been a fan of yours for a long time. I think at the time I was checking out records like Soul Manifesto, which had just come out about Go 2001, ahead. 2002. So it's a real treat to get to meet you and finally get to talk to you, Rodney, that our paths finally get to cross like this, man. Uh, it's an honor. Yeah, man. And, you know, a question I really wanted to actually ask you and something I'm always compelled to talk to other guitar players about you know, we're fortunate in that we play a, such a beautiful instrument that seems like we're in a kind of a golden age of, of craftsmanship. There's so many great guitar makers, and you're somebody who has played such a wide range of instruments. In fact, there was a guitar festival in Oregon where I'm from, and Gary Mortoro was there, and I saw, I think it was one of the instruments he had built for you that had these beautiful bird-style holes for the sound holes, and I've seen you play that. I've seen you play, of course, I have an L5 similar to yours, the two-pickup one, um, which is a, obviously a classic instrument, and now you're playing a Benedetto Bambino. I'm, I'm curious, the instruments that you've settled on recently, your Benedetto, your Heritage, were you seeking, were you continuing to seek out your your sound when you found those, or was it an instrument that when you played it, just really you bonded with right away? I'm just, I'm very curious with players like you that play such a wide range of instruments over the course of your career. Well, yeah, it's a good question. I thank you for that. I mean, I, I started playing with with, with Kenny Burrell and the jazz guitar band in 1987 with myself and Bobby Broom and Kenny Burrell. And um, that was when I really, Bobby was playing a Yamaha SA-1100 at that time or something like that. And I noticed that his sound was really cutting and projecting. And I was playing the Guild Artist Award, a Guild X500. And Kenny was playing a Super 400, of course. And it just wasn't projecting as much. So I decided that I would go, I was going to try a thinner guitar. So, I had done a, I did a record date with a singer who showed her many nameless. And at the end of the date, she's like, oh, I'm sorry, Rodney, but I don't have any money. Yet. Uh, all the money I, I'm, I'm out of money. I can't pay you. And it was like a thousand dollar date. You know, I'm like, do you have no money? I said, well, do, I said, do you have a credit card? <laughs> she said, well, you know, her mistake. She said, yeah, I have a credit card. I said, come on, we're going to take a walk. So we walked over to 48th street where all the music was in that time and you all the guitar store. And I walked in and there was a, a heritage. Uh, what was it called? What's the model A five thirty five? a heritage five thirty five, which is like a three thirty five, but heritage. I bought like the third one they ever made. Wow. <laughs> you know, so it was like zero, zero, zero three, whatever it was. 
And I started playing that and I loved it. I fell in love with the sound of it, you know? Um, and, and so I ended up playing that like with Lena Horne. I played it with Maceo Parker. I played it on all the TV shows. It was my go-to acts for like every gig I did for 25 years or more, you know? Yeah. Um, I really loved it. That That's why I have it over here. It's, it's sitting, sitting never far away. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like my, my old girlfriend that I like, you know, don't tell this one, but you know, <laughs> sitting right there, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I love it, but the heritage 555 was the main one. 535 was the main one that I used for years in more recent times. I mean, Benedetto makes incredible sort of handmade guitars. I've had a lot of handmade. I've had a Lehman, I've had a Palin, you know, I've had the, the Mortoros, you know, I'm not a big, proponent of handmade i'm not like one of those because i'm not a collector so to me it only matters if it sounds and feels the way i want it to sound and feel like the value of it is not really in a consideration it does it do what i want it to do mm-hmm. um this guitar is thin and i the, the heritage bambino i mean the uh benedetto bambino deluxe um it's thin it's a laminate that i use but it has enough acoustic sound that i get some of that in the sound and enough sustain that i can it has enough punch to it the other guitar that I really use a lot n- now that I love is this the Angelico uh, SS, which is, uh, I mean, for the money, yeah. for the value. It out of the box, it plays great. Out of the box, it sounds great. It's like they somebody figured out something about how to make a guitar because it really plays fantastic. It just immediately plays great. So I use that a lot, and I've used that a lot, you know, recently. And when there were gigs pre-pandemic, I used that a lot. You know, the, the 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 old joke is true. You know, I was I was doing a gig at one of these clubs, smoke or something, mm-hmm. and the, the student said, "Man, that guitar sounds good." I said, "Really? Here, yeah, the old West." Yeah. And it didn't, then it didn't, yeah, then it didn't sound good. You know, yeah, I so it, you know, it's like that. You know, um, so at this point, I you know, I can make every guitar sound like me. Mm-hmm. pretty much because i know what i'm you know i know how to make it sound like me that the best guitar i've ever had that i let get away you know everyone has that regret story i've had and you know i had 51 guitars at my guitar like everyone has like their fat peak my my guitar peak i had 51 wow. because when i was doing all these tv shows i had you know a set in the in nbc studios i had a set in the recording studio i had a set at, at juilliard teaching i had set at manhattan i had set at home you know i had 51 and it was just too much. So I, I went and winnowed them down. I had, you know, you know, Super 400 and Artist Awards and, you know, L5s and all that. I got rid of all of them. I, I bought a 66 L5 oh. that I only made one record. I made two records with it, you know, uh, where it was just like the sound was just amazing. And then I started doing a lot of more like commercial gigs and stuff like that. And I wasn't really using it. It sat in the closet and I had the genius idea. You know what? too many guitars i gotta let it go yeah and i sold it for like five thousand now it's worth like twenty thousand i sold it for like five grand at the time but that was the best guitar i think i ever had wow yeah just sound wise but yeah the heritage heritage 535 is the the one that's the soundtrack of my life i i remember as a kid seeing you on the rosie o'donnell show play that guitar by the way i vividly rodney because i was getting into jazz guitar and i could see the shape of a semi and i was like man that guy looks like a cool jazz guitar player lo and behold you know got to check out your records man yeah and you know just a couple other small questions before i pass it over to my core cohort will we you talked about the record that you did with kenny burrell i love that album generation i think it was recorded 86 87 live at the Mm -hmm. right what was the vibe that night um 
that of like Kenny being kind of a teacher to you guys? I mean, I know you knew Kenny and so did Bobby Broom for a while. Um, every time I've hung with Kenny, he always has like a nugget. There's always something he says, and he, you know, he, he's always had that kind of father figure to all of us. I mean, he's like, he's right there. Wes, Kenny, Barney, Grant, one of the, one of the, one of the yeah. roots of the tree. Yeah. So what was, what, what I'm sure you remember that night vividly. Cause I mean, gosh, getting to record at the Vanguard with Kenny Burrell and was Kenny Washington on that record too. Yeah. And Dave, Dave Jackson. Yeah. 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 What was the vibe like that night, man? Cause it's such a, great I mean, night. it was, it was great just to give you context. You know, when I started playing jazz, I was like 16 or something when I was, playing and you know and i checked out kenny brill like live at the half note or 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 no at the five spot five spot and i love that record recording so kenny brill was playing at what was in the half note club he was there for a week so literally like for the first three nights i was too young to get in i just went and stood outside to watch him go in i just stood outside the club you know and i'd be like hi mr burrell and i would wave to him you know then i would be like say hi to Kenny Burrell. It was like, and I'd look through the window. I couldn't hear him play, but I could see them on the bandstand. You know, so I did that three. So the third night there and he comes in and he came over to me and said, you're here every night. I said, yeah, Mr. Burrell. He said, you play guitar. I said, I want, I'm learning jazz, you know? And he said, he said, well, come on in. And he took me up to the dress room and talked to me and like that. Mm -hmm. Moving ahead. That's when I was 16 at 19. I'm in Nice, France, on the stage with Kenny Burrell, two guitars playing because I'm there with Dizzy, and we're it's they had a like a you know collaboration night or whatever. So I'm there. It's me and Kenny Burrell, the two guitar players, and Kenny's like, "You've come a long way." I was like, "Thank uh, you, Mister Burrell." You know, I sure have. You know, yeah, wow. um, uh, no, I, Kenny wasn't in the role of teacher so much. It, you know, he didn't he didn't ever assert or relish the position of that. He always saw eye to eye, heart to heart. You know, soul to soul, he was he was that guy. But I understood who Kenny Burrell is. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I'm like old school that way. Like I understood that like Kenny Burrell to this day has forgotten more guitar play more guitar than I know. To this day, right now, he know he's forgotten more than I can play right now. I know that's how it goes. Likewise, myself, you know, like I had a student tell me the other day, man, you showed me everything I know. I said, yeah, that's true, but not everything I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, I just recognize that about Kenny. So there was this sense of respect and admiration. Kenny was like, he was mythical, you know, and to Bobby Broom, the same thing. I mean, the love that we felt for him, the fact that he selected us of all the guitarists in the world to be the representative of like the future of what jazz guitar could be, I thought was an incredible honor. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when I joined, and I was playing almost exclusively with my thumb too, which I thought was odd. Uh-huh. And it was sort of his tip of the hat to the West Montgomery sensibility sure. in that way and bobby was sort of playing more schofield is like and so we had a real balance of different feelings and, you know what well, funny story you know kenny we, we we were rehearsing for that gig and he brought in some new music uh for that and it was kind of complex he wanted like well let's do like a three-part harmony thing and i, I was struggling with the part you know and bobby was totally struggling with the part we both of us are like struggling with the part you know and so i said to kenny later i said kenny how did you how did you learn to read so well? You read really well. He said, yeah, I read pretty good, but not so good that it messes up my playing. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, great. And I understood what he was, I, I got the lesson in that, what he was saying about right. where we're reading what, you know, it's a skill, but don't confuse that with the music. Yeah. 
Yeah. Man, these are such great nuggets. I'm so stoked to get to hear you talk like this too. Lastly, before I pass it to Will, I'm curious with your thumb playing, were you also inspired, not of course by Wes, but but by Jimmy Ponder at all? Did you get to hang with Jimmy much? Yeah, I knew Jimmy very well. Actually, I did some gigs, uh, guitar trio with Jimmy and Bobby Broom and myself. Yeah. Did a bunch of, with Major Holly on bass. And, uh, wow, man. And the drummer, um, Jesse Hameen, Cheese, they call him, played drums. Uh, we did a bunch of gigs like that. And actually, there's a, there's like, a DVD of that somewhere. I don't know where it is, but there, you know, it was, it was cool. I mean, I love Jimmy Ponder, but yeah. when I, when I decided to play with my thumb, it was 19, uh, about 1980. Okay. And I decided, you know, if I love the sound so much, if I really, you know, the thumb has such an organic, just ha two hands on the instrument versus a pick, you know, there's something so organic and pure and true about that. I said, you know, if I'm going to do that, I should really do that. Like, I don't, I, I don't want to be a dabbler, you know, I, I, I dabbled in it. You know, dabbling is never, you know, you, you don't play anything well if you're one foot's out the door. You're like, yeah, I'm sort of working on sort of. What do you mean? So I wanted to really do this. So I gave up playing with the pick for five years. Mm. Now, when I say gave up, I did gigs. I worked, you know, using the pick. But I never practiced with the pick at all. I just let the pick sort of stay where it was. And I worked every day with my thumb, you know. And, you know, what I realized about the thumb is that it's like, an, it's like a saxophone embouchure. If you don't have the... Uh, the callus just right, you don't get the articulation. It's like playing with a pick where the edge is shifting all the time. So in order to make the thumb work at its highest level, like Wes and those guys, and I'm not saying I can play like that, but to make it even in the zone of that required me to play enough that I could maintain the callus that would give me the articulation I needed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now I don't really do that enough. So I'm good with like medium tempos and a ballad, but the up-tempo thing is problematic um, because I just don't have the embouchure in my thumb for that. But yeah, the point I'm making is that to master something, to attempt to master something, to attempt to really delve into it, it required five years of real commitment, yeah. you know, and I, and most musicians are not willing to stick with something long enough. You know, new love is always exciting, but you <laughs> learn something when you stay with someone long. My wife and I have been married 32 years. What I've learned about myself and her and about dynamics I would never have learned if I said, oh, well, we've been married five years. You know, now there's this new hot chick. Let me go to her. Mm -hmm. New love is always hot. It's always exciting. It's always great. It's like a new guitar. It's always amazing. You play it. But but a year later, it's the old guitar. So right. then what do you do? Right. And so, I, you know, I, I just decided that if I was going to play with a thumb, I was going to really take the time to go deep in it and honor. Because I always view myself as standing on the shoulders of the people who came before me. No Kenny Burrell, no me. No Barney Kessel, no me. Mm -hmm. No George Benson, no me. Mm -hmm. No Grant Green, no me. No Wes Montgomery, no me. And you could say it N-O and also K-N-O-W. If you know <laughs> yeah. Wes Montgomery, you know me. Yeah. You know Grant Green, you know me. Like it's no me means it also means no me. Like I wouldn't be me without them. Yeah, right. man. So I have a sense of of that because I have seen firsthand I got to play with a lot of those guys. I got to play with Freddie Green and I got to play with, you know, Mickey Baker and I got to, you know, to play with with the, the a lot of the guys, Stan Getz and you know, Yubi Blake and the people that invented this music and and I saw the price that they paid to play the music. You know, I knew that what, you know, particularly, uh, you know, for black musicians in that time, man, they, they couldn't sleep at hotels. They were sleeping across the tracks. They were, you know, spit on by day and celebrated at night. I mean, you know, and then though the courage of the white musicians to say, no, that's not going to work. People like, like Frank Sinatra said, that's, he said, I won't play the Sands Hotel unless you let my band, Count Basie, stay at the hotel where they're playing 
or I won't play here. He said, I won't play in Vegas unless you let Lena Horn play in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So it's not only, you know, it's not only just African American, you know, it took people of courage to stand up like it mm-hmm. does now. Mm-hmm. It took people of courage to say, you know, right is right. Mm-hmm. Music is colorblind. Music, it doesn't matter your color, your gender, who you love, how you love, where you're from. None of that matters. What religion you are, none of that matters. What matters is when I hear you play, do I believe you? And is it, do I feel something? Mm-hmm. Is it true? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That. That's what matters. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, that's what the thumb brought to me. You know, I, I said, if I'm going to play with my thumb, I got to play with my thumb. I don't want to be a dabbler and sort of like sort of play with it. And there's only a few guys that do that with the thumb mm-hmm. really well. George Benton plays with some like it's, I know. <laughs> you know, like it's nothing. Yeah. You know, he's just, but he's a, he's a freak of nature. It's a different sort of thing. So I'm not a freak of nature. I do a lot of hard work. You know? <laughs> yeah, man. Well, this is just a beautiful description. I'd love to pass it over to Will. It's so great to talk to you, Rodney. And we really appreciate you taking the time to be on high action with us today, man. It's oh, just- this is a great, I mean, what a great, great, you know, opportunity to share and be, and for people to listen and get not just only my view, but that of all the musicians that come on the show. It's, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's a singular experience it's beautiful and, and it's beautiful because you have people asking questions who are knowledgeable you know i'm not explaining like the wheel you know <laughs> right. well there's this thing called a bridge <laughs> i don't have to explain yeah. i don't mean the bridge of a tune i mean there's a bridge on the guitar <laughs> what does the bridge do you know i don't have to explain that but yeah yeah exactly thank you but it's an honor thank you thank yeah. you Ron. yeah rodney this has been so wonderful and insightful and i i love i it's it's so great so many great talking points I have two questions for you. Okay. Um, the first is, especially very recently with, you know, all, all these gigs going away and we're alone more, how has your relationship with music, whether it's interacting with technology or, or your practice habits or your daily habits, how has that changed um, due, due to this? Or even just in the past, like, 10 years with a, as much of – how technology is starting to kind of infiltrate like our daily music making. Yeah. How, how has that evolved? Well, uh, so I'm an early adapter, you know, early adopter. I mean, I got my first computer in 1982, <laughs> you know, and so I've been, you know, with, when it was like, you know, a 25 baud modem, I was like that guy, you know, it was, so I've been, you know, embracing technology with, you know, and performer and pro tools and logic. I mean, I've used all those mm-hmm. things for years and I have every synthesizer guitar known to humankind i've always had every software you know uh known to you know to, on earth and i have every plug-in from waves and i know how to use them and so um never mind that this is an old board it really works you know it sounds it sounds good but um so i'm i'm a technology i've always been at the leading edge of that you know mm-hmm. uh, but always to serve the music you know i never did it yeah but i wrote a lot of commercials i wrote a lot of tv commercials i had a whole life as a jingle writer that you all don't even know much about, you know, I wrote like commercials for like, you know, AT&T with Whitney Houston and, and, you know, all kind of Ford trucks and Coca-Cola and all kind mm-hmm. of stuff, you know? Um, so I had to be versed in the technology and the digital technology and all that, you know, I got a sense about three years ago that I needed to really transform and go to a digital model of t- that. That was going to be the future that self-education was going to be the future and digital self-education was really going to be the future. So I had already built my own vision of how that was going to look like. And so then I began to teach online and that became, became successful. And I began to teach group classes online, which became wildly successful. And, uh, 
you know, that I began to stream online, which was there were first, there was nobody doing it hardly. And now everybody's doing it. And, you know, so I was pretty much all, I mean, I've kept up with the technology, you know, I, yeah. I buy better and better webcams. I buy better and better microphones and, you know, devices that serve what, what I need to do, you know, um, but it never really, it didn't really affect me. What you all maybe don't know is that, you know, in, in November of 2017, I had a catastrophic hand injury. I severed the ligament of my index finger and the mm. vein in my left hand. I couldn't play guitar for almost a year. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I got surgery on my hand and couldn't play and I had to sit around and just look at, but it was the best thing. It let me slow down to see all the music that I was zooming by. You know, it was, it was great. So, and it also let, sort of filter out all the, the stuff that I didn't really like to play anymore, sort of like fell away. And the things that remained were the things I really loved. Mm -hmm. So I think I play better now than I did before. I don't have quite the speed that I had before, but I think I have, you know, 80% of the speed and, and 150% of the content. So mm -hmm. that's a good trade I would make, but it, it took a lot of work. You know, the, the, the surgeon said, you know, you'll be good to open doors and, and jars. Mm -hmm. He said anything more than that, it's, it's going to be up to you. So then that, that ended up with me every morning at five o'clock, you know, uh, sitting down with my guitar from five to seven, five to eight, and just working it out step by step by step, re relearn, not like Pat Martino where I had a catastrophic brain injury, yeah, but yeah. basically I couldn't play octaves. I had no strength in my first finger. I couldn't play octaves. I couldn't, any line that required me to launch off, you know, I, I tease and say, I wasn't Django. I was just Ango because I, I couldn't get the D and the J. So I was just, you know, Ango. these three fingers were good. I was Ango, you know, I could do this, you know, um, but it required a lot of work, which I still do. If I don't, I have to play every day or my finger becomes stiff and mm -hmm. can't play. Wow. So I, it's a good discipline. I have to play every day for at least an hour or I can't play. Mm. Wow. In the wow. what the doctors call deconditioning. So the, the point being that, um, you know, I think, you know, you cannot climb a mountain that's smooth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The obstacles that you face in learning the instrument and the, the, the difficulties and the, the, the hard parts are the very things that gain, give you the strength and perspective to keep going. The difficulty is most people, you know, like when you, if you drive a car and you come to a stop sign, what do you do? You stop. You look both ways, you consider where you're going, and then you keep going. But people, when they're learning an instrument or trying to master an instrument, they reach these plateaus. They say, oh, my God, I can't do it. I quit. They see the stop sign and they go home, not realizing the intention of the stop sign is to give you pause to reevaluate, to reconsider. So the only question with the pandemic, like we have now, is whether it's a, whether it's a trampoline year or an anchor year. Whether you're anchored in the horror of this year and what it's been, and that's where you're stuck in moving forward, or whether this is the year where you use this time that you have to be as a trampoline and a springboard for the next version of you. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done. So I've been working harder than ever. I've been practicing more than I ever have in my life. I'm using the time to be the best version of me that I can possibly be and yeah. to share that online. What I do online is no different than what I do in person. I'm just as present online as I, right. you know, as I am on per, in person. So nothing has really changed for me other than I've upped my level of, of sure. focus and, and dedication to sharing the very best because, you know, I'm a teacher who can play. I'm not a player who can teach. You know, mm -hmm. I've always self-identified as a teacher first and a player second, even though I've had a great playing career, I've always known that I'm a teacher. You know, I've always known that because Bruce Johnson, my teacher said, you know, every time you learn something, ask yourself, if you had to teach someone else the same thing you're learning, how would you do it? And I took that to heart. So everything I've learned in my entire career, 
I have figured out how to teach someone else to do. Hmm. And that's a rare thing. You know, a lot of teachers, a lot of players are not great teachers and a lot of teachers are not great players. It's, hmm. There's a few of us that can do both. Hmm. You know, a lot of people that teach, teach for the money. They teach because there's nothing else. Hmm. There's no gigs. Not enough. They can't survive so they can teach, you know. But there's a few of us that teach because it's a calling. It's something that that's deeper than yeah. that. It's something they believe in that they're committed to. I get more enjoyment out of seeing a student succeed than playing a gig. Mm. And that's when I realized that, then I was cool with who I am. I was like, you know, I don't have to be at the Vanguard, hang out every night. And I'm not, I'm not jealous if Russell Malone gets his gig and I don't. I don't care about that because I know what I'm doing. Mm. You know, I got a I got a message today unsolicited from a guy who said, you know, I'm studying, taking your course, and it has changed my life. He didn't say his music. He said, it has changed my life. He said, it's made a huge difference. It is the thing that's letting me survive the pandemic. So you tell me, what's more rewarding, to get that mm -hmm. or to have someone applaud for your solo once, you know, sell by Starlight? Right. That means I a lot love, more to me. I love what you said, taking this time to, to become and find the best version of you. That's what a great like mindset for for everyone for us for the the world regardless of the craft of what whoever whatever like that's so beautiful so my next question very relevant to all your teaching and you see students and you're you know you seeing maybe a, a general trends in in young music students or old music students where do you see music and jazz going like, oh, I think it's going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's just like this Gandhi quote, you know, what do you think of civilization? And Gandhi said, I think it would be a good idea. You know, like, <laughs> you know, said, you know yeah. he said, what do you think of Western civilization? He said, yeah, I think it would be a good idea. You know, it's like, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, no, I mean, I think that I never see, uh, not never say never, I rarely see things in generalities, although there are trends and, and, mm -hmm. and things. Um I, I think there are a lot of really wonderful guitar voices. I just think that there's a, there's a maturity, you know, there's a, like wine, there's an aging process that time will give a lot of them perspective that they don't have now. Yeah. You know, and, and so I, I want to look at people through the positive lens, generally speaking, not through the negative lens. I, you know, the things I don't care for, I don't, guitars that are overly technical and they think that's it, not so much. Guitars that are full of themselves, it's about them, they're not so much. That's not what it is. Guitars that don't embrace the foundation that the music is built on. doesn't mean you have to play it, but that you have spent some time living in that world to understand the origins, where you, the soil you're planted in. Yes. If you don't have appreciation for that, not so much. Guitars that are entitled, not so much. Guitars that think they're reinventing the wheel, not so much. So... You know, as someone who's seen everything and done everything and still doing everything, I think, you know, I think there's some really great voices. I mean, you know, I, I think of guys like, you know, who's students of mine, like, you know, someone like a Peter Bernstein, you know, who, you know, took a lesson or two, but who was so committed to making beautiful music. It was mm -hmm. it was evident in his earliest days that he wanted to play something beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's an aesthetic that is is not always there, right. you know the aesthetic of actually how to swing and that swinging has a value and it's important. That's not always there. The idea of treating the guitar as an orchestra and finding other harmonic choices and really thinking like an arranger, you know, to be the Count Basie orchestra, to play guitar like your Johnny Mandel arrangement, you know, that sort of thing is not always there, 
but I think there's time. You know, I think that, mm-hmm. that uh, people will find the way. The thing I'm more concerned about is that, you know, in order to play yourself, and this is a this is a big this is a discussion that I had uh, a major conflict I had when I, at Juilliard with Wynton Marsalis. I've never mentioned this by name, but I, I'm not afraid. I'll mention it now. You know, mm-hmm. when a meeting in a faculty meeting with all the robust August faculty and Kenny Barron and Ron Carter and all these people are there, and he said, you know, the best thing we can ever teach a student is how to play themselves. That that's that's our goal. That's the best thing we can ever show a student. And everyone said yes. And I said, excuse me. Went and yeah, I don't think so. And everyone's like, oh, and because if you know, went and like, you don't want to, he's not the guy you want to like, you know, but I'm a grown up, you know, I'm, I got, you know, I got my big boy pants on. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Guy. So, you know, so I said, you know, I think the most important thing we can ever teach a student is how to know themselves. Because how can you play yourself if you don't know yourself? What self are you playing? If you teach them to play themselves, but they don't know who they are, they don't know where they're planted, they don't know what it means to them. If they don't know the why of why they're doing it, telling them to play themselves is telling them to be a great actor in a play who doesn't know the meaning of the play. You can act great. You're a genius actor. But if you don't know the point of the play, there's something really important that's missing from your your thing. So I said, no, Winton. I think the most important thing is to help them to know themselves and then play themselves. He said, well, I disagree with that. Wow. Like, okay. Well, that's all good. You know, I'm glad yeah. you. I'm glad. I'll go with what I believe, and you go with what you believe. It's all good. Um, before I give it back to Perry, who I think has another uh, recording of yours to play, I I really loved what you were talking about earlier um, regarding playing with Dizzy, where going deep versus going wide. Uh, one. Okay, I'm adding a third question here. What are some of the benefits to either that you feel, and which way do you feel that you tend to lean towards more if, I, if you do lean towards one more. I do. I mean, I always go deep and yeah. wide. You know, I, I take enough time saying no to things that don't matter allows me to have more time for the things right. you do. So I have enough time for the things that matter because I say no to stuff that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Every time I'm doing anything, I'm aware I'm not doing something else. I'm talking to you guys. It's time I'm not doing something else. I'm aware of that. It's a choice I make. It's a conscious choice. I don't have to do it. If I didn't want to do it, I would say, thank you, Perry, but no, I'm not doing it. And I wouldn't lose it, lose an L. It would be deleted from my mailbox and no one would care anymore, you know. <laughs> but if once I decide I'm going to do it, then I'm going to be fully present and give everything to it. So mm-hmm. having said that, uh, I think, you know, the person who's, who swims in three feet of water and says, hey, man, I was swimming in the ocean today. And the person that swims in 100 feet of water says, hey, I was swimming in the ocean today. But they're different things. Mm-hmm. Both say they swam in the ocean and both are true. The person that swims into the ocean in the middle of the ocean and then dives beneath the waves, they also swam in the ocean. That's yet a third thing that means something different. Mm-hmm. See, yeah. it takes courage. You know, you know, boats are safe in a harbor, but that's not what boats are made for. Boats are made to sail out into the ocean. So it takes courage to be willing to suspend what you can do for what you might be able to do or what might. You always have to fail forward. You know, if you're failing, you, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, but you're failing forward like dominoes. Eventually, the dominoes are going to fall, and you're going to get the end, and you can do it. If you're not, you know, you try, you fail 100% of everything you don't try. Mm-hmm. If you're scared you might fail, and you don't try something for that reason, you have failed. You did not try it. You did not do it. You have failed. If you try it, you might fail, but you will fail forward, and you will learn. And that failure becomes the foundation of what you do. You know the roads not to take 
because you took the wrong road. Then you take the right road. That's what you do. So I, I think the great benefit of going deep is that the treasures, you know, like, you know, and the longer you do it, but, you know, things that, like things that Peter and I have talked about, for example, like, like it matters whether you play a note and go, or whether you go, those are different things. Or whether you go, those are different things. Or whether you go, you vibrate that way. Or those are all different things that, you know, the, the listen to Miles Davis play on, on Kind of Blue. Mm. The level of poetry and nuance that's evident in his notes. I mean, Coltrane was genius. But on that record, the poetry that Miles played, the nuance, the things that he showed were important. Yeah. It takes a while. You only get that by drilling down deep. You have to listen to Kind of Blue a hundred times. And then a hundred times just listening to the bass and drums. Mm-hmm. And then a hundred times just listening to Bill Evans and the bass. Mm-hmm. And a hundred times just listening to Miles on the piano. You know, the exercise I have asked my students to do is to turn the music down as soft as possible and listen louder. You want to raise your attention your ability to hear and your ability to focus and to maintain your attention, you want that to raise as the music gets softer. So you're hearing better, even though the music's softer. When the music's loud, it's, you know, it's like if I have a lot of sputtering and ground noise, if I make the, the you know, the, the ceiling, if I play loud enough on my amplifier, you don't hear it, but it's still there. But you don't hear it, but it's still there. Well, it's like that with, with, with listening carefully. So, you know, going deep into things discovers it's the journey of towards mastery, which is different than the journey of just learning a skill. You know, that these nuances become important the further you go along. Now, I'm a big fan of and a big proponent of, of parallel learning, which is you work on the most difficult thing and the easiest thing at the same time. You mm-hmm. peel the onion from outside in and inside out at the same time. Because if you're always saying like A to B to C, you may never get to X and Y, Z. You know, you're not going to have it. To, you, if you're waiting, it's like people that practice say, well, I know if I practice for five years, then I'll be good enough to be on a, but they never play a tune all the way through. And then they get on a bandstand and wonder, well, how come I can't solo for, ten, for five minutes? And it sounds like anything. Do you practice soloing for five minutes at all? You right. practice like it's a gig? Right. I, I would sit here and to this day and play like I'm on the gig. Mm-hmm. When pandemic is over and it's time for me to play, I'm as good as I was before pandemic began because I'm playing like I'm on the gig right now. Literally, today, I will do a gig, two sets, here in my little studio by myself with my own backing tracks, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, and I go hard and go in and go deep and, you know, it's for real. So, I think going deep has a bit. Now, having said that, you know, I, I have gone wide. Yeah, I've played with James Brown, you know, and I, I, I've played with all the blues legends and the rock legends and the the funk legends, I've you know, and I've done the rappers, and I've done all these kind of things, and you know Willie Nelson and Frankie Valley, and you name it, and Trish Yearwood and country music. I've done, mm-hmm. you know, who's who of of music. But I used the formula that I was saying at the beginning of this this interview, you know, which is that I listen to country music, and there's a lot of beautiful things there. There's some mm-hmm. genius players that play that music. I'm never going to be that. But the things I like that they do, the the, the two or three things that I really heard, say, man, I that thing, mm-hmm. then I learned that thing. And when I play those things with conviction and with my heart and belief, 
Yeah. It works. When I was with Dizzy at, at 19, I didn't have the range. Look, I got called to sub for a, on a record date with Milt Jackson. Joe Pass was sick and couldn't do it. So they called Ray Brown, Milt Jackson, Mickey Roker, and me. And I'm wow. 19 years old. Yeah. I'm 19 years old in L.A. Like, <laughs> so I show up and I'm like, I'm like, Milt, man, but like, what am I even doing here? Like, <laughs> you know, and he said, man, when you when you comp, it feels so good. So I didn't have all the vocabulary of Joe Pass. I didn't have all that solo guitar stuff worked out. I was a kid. I mean, I, I could play all right, but I didn't have all that. But what I had that maybe he didn't have as much as if you say, let's play a blues and F, I'm going to swing you into bad health. I'm going to comp you to death. <laughs> I might only know five chords, but those five chords, I'm going to play the crap out of them. <laughs> it's going to feel so good. You're going to be like, oh, my God, I only want to play these five chords for the rest of my life. That's what I, you know, because I would play them full on, full in with everything I had. And and as authentic and true and grooving and swinging so i realized that dizzy the reason they could hire me and i could work with all these masters of the music wasn't because i knew a lot it was because i felt good to play with no one wants to play with someone who doesn't make them feel good when they're playing no one mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who's going to hire you if you don't make them feel good when they're playing mm -hmm. nobody mm -hmm. so the reason i got work was because you know and the reason i got the gig with lena horn you know when i played the audition we played be bewitched bothered and bewildered what did i do I listened to every recording she had ever made of Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, and listened to how she phrased, listened to what her, her thing was. And then I wore a suit because I knew who Lena Horne was. Lena Horne was old school. She wouldn't expect me to show up in a T-shirt looking like I'm off the David Letterman show. You know, so I went to the audition. There were like 20 guitar players. They were all like, you know, hippie types or, you know, sort of neo-afro types. And I showed up in a three-piece gray suit. You know, I walked in. I called her Miss Horn. I didn't call her Lena. I don't know her. I understand her history, who she is. I said, Miss Horn. And she said, well, play. And I played like what I knew she had heard a thousand times before. Mm -hmm. And I got the gig. And I asked the manager later. He said, you got the gig. He said, when you walked in and you had the three-piece suit on, you were hired right then. Because you showed me that you understood who Lena Horn is. And then when you played, you showed me that you had done the homework. Your goal was to make her comfortable. You weren't there to show how good you were. You were there to show how good she was. That's why you got the gig. And so I ended up being her, becoming her musical director and, and a dear friend for more than 20 years. Well, Rodney, thank you so much for this insight, man. What an inspiring interview. I don't know if I answered your question, but... <laughs> you did, and more, okay, and more. Cool, yeah, cool. thank you, Rodney. You're welcome. My pleasure. Well, let me just uh, try to wrap this up again. Thank you so much for your time. It's, it's really been an honor for us to hear you speak. Um, we've talked a little bit about this phrase, going deep and going wide. Um, there's a lot of merits to what you're saying. And one of the things I've admired about your career for a long time is you've sort of balanced this idea of sort of the traditions of jazz guitar, but also working, as you mentioned, with people like Maceo Parker and James Brown, sort of more of the funk or the blues side, R&B side of things. And I wanted just to close out the interview by showcasing uh, a song from your record, Soul Manifesto. It's really a great, more of a grooving type of a uh, record uh, on Blue Note, really killing stuff. And I think it also features Maceo Parker, at least on a lot Maceo of Maceo and Arthur Blythe are on that recording, too. Arthur, Arthur Blythe, exactly, yeah. And I uh, wanted to just sort of close out a little bit here with some of your playing over the great song, Ain't No Sunshine. So cool. let's take a quick listen to this. This is a, a great track. Okay. Thank you. 
Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah. Great tone, great ideas. It's really been such a pleasure, Rodney. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, share your insight, share some of your music. Uh, we really appreciate it. Man, it's it's a pleasure, and I thank you guys for you know what you're doing for the the light and love that you're sowing into the jazz guitar community, into the music community writ large. And pleasure. yeah, thanks, thank Rodney. So thanks, Rodney. So great to get to meet you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank all of you. I appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.